Amen. If you would, please turn in your Bible to Psalm 4, the book of Psalms, number 4. It's on page 529 in your Bible. Last time, and when I say last time, I mean last time I was preaching on the Psalms. I'm trying to do the Psalms in the evening, the pastorals in the morning, so that's the schedule. So last time we were in the Psalms, if you remember, if you recall, we looked together at Psalm 2 and also a little bit at Psalm 1. We noted that those two Psalms were clearly placed at the beginning of this collection, and all scholars, all theologians that I know of, agree that those two psalms form a kind of two-panel door into the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, of course, speaks of the blessedness, the happiness and joy, the beatitude is the old-fashioned word, of the man who builds his life upon God's word. Blessed is that man. Its mirror text is Jesus's wonderful Beatitudes found in Matthew 5, where Jesus so powerfully expands and develops Psalm 1 for us. It is also a wisdom psalm, and much like the Proverbs, it holds out its hands to us, as it were, and offers life, real life, and blessing. Psalm 2 adds the other main theme of the Old Testament, in a word, eschatology. Eschatology means last things, or really better yet, ultimate things. Psalm 2 tells us how things ultimately work out, where history is going. Maybe I can put it this way. Psalm 1 tells us how life works, where blessing is to be found in each of our lives as God's children. And Psalm 2 tells us how history works, where history is going Psalm 2, you will recall, is quite clear, isn't it? The Messiah will reign. God laughs at men's efforts to derail his son's plan. Lots of other things will happen, but in the end, Jesus wins. Together, these two psalms paint a complete picture of life and history. Life is about God's blessing. History is about God's glory in his son. Now, if you stopped reading there, if you never read another psalm, you might be tempted to think that life is pretty easy if you follow God, and that history is pretty straight, a simple movement upwards and onwards. And at one level, that is true. From a big picture viewpoint, from the long view, that is what is happening on earth. God is always winning in history, and people are always blessed as they cling to him and his word. But there is another perspective, isn't there? From the day-to-day point of view, at the nitty-gritty level, as we call it, things are quite messy, aren't they? Yes, Jesus is always winning the war, but the battles are ugly, There's lots of carnage. Following Jesus always leads to blessing. But in this world, we will have suffering, trouble, just as Jesus promised us. Tonight, we take up Psalm 4. And like Psalm 1 and 2, Psalm 4 is one half of a pair. Psalm 3 and 4 go together and were placed here together because they represent one long and hard day in the life of a believer. 
Psalm 3, which you heard a moment ago, is a morning psalm. David is in a major crisis, and he awakes up, and the Lord is still with him, and he rejoices. And so at the heart of Psalm 3 is this wonderful poetic line in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. David rejoices in God who has got him through another night as he is being hunted by his own son, Absalom. Absalom had stolen the hearts of the people defiled David's wives and claimed the throne. David was forced to flee Jerusalem, only pausing briefly in the garden of Gethsemane to cry out to God, as Jesus would do many years later on that same spot. David's life was on the line as never before. This is his greatest trial. Psalm 4 is now the evening psalm to pair with Psalm 3. How can David go to sleep? When his world is falling apart, how can he get past the grief of what his son has done and the fear and all the rest? Well, let's find out together. Please stand and we'll read Psalm number four. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we come to you from a restless world, and we come before you with restless hearts. And we pray now, Father, that you would extend to us David's pillow, which is Christ and his righteousness, and that you would give to your people here tonight rest in all their sorrows as we study study this psalm together. And we pray that you would do this, Father, for the glory of your Son. And so we ask it in his name alone. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 4 has a clear structure to it, but it's really unusual. Since we live in a visual age, let me describe it to you visually. Maybe that will help. In verse 1, we see David kneeling in prayer, but probably not in his royal bedroom in Jerusalem, but rather on the run from his own son Absalom, who has staged a coup. At this point, Absalom seems to be winning. David has fled his capital, Jerusalem. He's away from the comfort of home. And more importantly, he is away from the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. His life and worship are interrupted. So in verse 1, we see this great king later in life on the run, kneeling beside his bed, maybe in a cave or in a tent. And his prayer is probably coming to an end. And verse 1 is probably just the end 
of a much longer prayer. Then, remarkably, in verses 2 through 5, David rises from prayer, prayer, as it were, and he faces the camera, if I can put it that way, and he begins to talk to the nation, especially those who are opposing him. These verses are not really technically a prayer, but more of a proverbial speech. He gives them wise counsel, warns them and calls them to think carefully about what they are trying to do. David, you see, has mixed feelings about this rebellion. Some people in Israel at this point are truly his enemies, but others are caught up in this rebellion and they don't fully realize where their anger and lust is taking them. So the center of the psalm, verses 2 through 5, is David urging his fellow countrymen to wisdom during this uncertain time. Then finally, in verses 6 through 8, he remains on camera, so to speak, but his eyes go upward. He returns to prayer, and he glorifies God publicly. He asks God to bless him with the light of his countenance, He talks about his delight in God's presence. He's showing the nation, you see, how they should be thinking and acting at this time of crisis. Instead of everyone looking for ways to get rich off the unrest, they should be delighting in God. And then the psalm ends in such a surprising and really dramatic way. He yawns, as it were, and stretches and goes right to sleep. This, that is the dramatic effect of the psalm. David is able to sleep even in the presence of his enemies because he trusts in God's care. So it's a very unusual structure. It begins with David in prayer, has a middle section directed to the people, and then concludes with a glorious prayer leading to sleep. This is David resting in God and having peace in the worst moment of his life. From that rest, he prays, he instructs, and he sleeps. Tonight, we'll look at just at verse 1 where we see, I think, using the famous words from the American Revolution, an appeal to heaven. So notice with me, first of all, the appeal to heaven made in verse 1. Answer me, writes David, when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. What do we have here? probably just the end of a longer prayer or maybe a summary of what David was praying in those days. It is a little prayer before David goes into the heart of the psalm to address the nation in verses 2 through 5. But although it is small, it is extremely rich. David has packed a lot of theology, a lot of meaning into this one verse. And, And once again, as a pastor, my job is at times, I think, to slow you down and ask you to really consider the power of this one verse. To do that, to uncover all the treasure in this little prayer, I want to put this prayer into the mouths of three different people. And I think this might be the best way of unfolding the prayer to us. So if you would, imagine with me this prayer in the mouth of three different characters. First, we should, of course, hear it as a prayer of David. That's the original setting, obviously. So David is the one, the king, saying, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you've heard me and saved me before. Be gracious to me now. Read this way on David's lips, 
We hear David appealing to God as his righteousness, his Elohim Siddiqui, God of my righteousness. But what does this name for God mean? What does it mean to call God my righteousness? The idea here in this name is that God is the one who upholds David's righteousness or David's righteous cause. David is not saying that he is righteous as compared to God or that his salvation is somehow guaranteed by his righteousness or that he is totally righteous and without sin. David knows better. Read Psalm 51. He knows. He's not saying that he's righteous compared to God or without sin in his life. Rather, he's saying that he is righteous compared to the people who are opposing him. He is innocent in this matter, in this conflict. He is the righteous party, and he is sure that God will eventually vindicate him in this matter. Of course, David is saying this because if you look at verse 2, his honor his reputation, his name is being turned into a shame by the leading men of Israel. His reputation, his glory, especially as king, as God's anointed one, has been absolutely trampled by Absalom and his allies. Absalom had persuaded the people that David was past his prime, not a good leader. And Absalom had taken David's wives and very publicly in a tent, violated them. Meanwhile, some had even taken to publicly ridiculing and mocking David. In 2 Samuel 16, we have the record of this terrible moment when David is fleeing his capital. A man follows him as he flees and yells at him again and again these words, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. So David has been personally, publicly humiliated in a way that especially as a king would have been hard to bear. But then in the second stanza of verse 1, David looks back on his life and he comforts himself. Literally, the second line of verse 1 says, You have given me space when I was in tight places before. That's literally what the Hebrew says. David is reminding himself and anyone listening that God has gotten him out of tight places before. It's as if David is saying to his soul, remember that whole Goliath thing? How did that work out? The leading men of Israel need to be reminded as well who they are messing with. David also needs to remind himself of how faithful God has been to him in days past. And we need that too. It's so easy to forget how God has cared for us when we're in our latest crisis. It seems so often in my own life that I get spiritual amnesia in a crisis. It's as if God has never helped me before. Sadly, I think to my shame, I have to admit that if you listened in to some of my prayers, you would think God had never helped me before, that I'd never had that experience, when quite the opposite is true. I wonder if some of you struggle with that too. Well, David, through the Spirit here, instructs us. We need to remember in our latest crisis what God has done before. The Bible teaches us again and again to be courageous and reflect on God's faithfulness rather than sinking down into despair. 
And then lastly in this prayer, and on the basis of all that, David makes his appeal again. Be gracious to me, he says at the end, and hear my prayer. The language is that of an inferior to a superior. David is not in a position to make demands. He asks God to be gracious, to give what is needed, to hear his prayer, not because of David's perfect righteousness, but because of God's graciousness. Just as we today end our prayers by saying, in Jesus' name, that is, according to the grace in Jesus, on the basis of Jesus' record, be gracious to us. That is the appeal to heaven on David's lips. But second, we need to put this prayer into our own mouths. David intended this. David wants us to do this. How can I say that? Well, notice the superscript, the heading of this psalm, the introduction. It designates this psalm as part of corporate worship, the worship of God's people, not just David's psalm, but a song for all God's people. The introduction says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. In other words, this was for public worship led by priests who trained in music in order to lead the people in worship. And in this case, stringed instruments were to be used. The people of God are meant to sing this psalm and take it as their own in every generation. There is no expiration date on this psalm. So let's do that for a moment. Let's imagine this psalm on our lips and in our lives. Let's remember that God is also our vindication, our righteousness. The idea here again is that God will uphold our cause and vindicate his people. Of course, we don't want to say this in an arrogant or triumphant manner. David, on the day he fled his capital, he kept his head down. He was very humble. He humbled himself before the Lord. He accepted the shame of his situation and entrusted himself to God. He didn't agree with those who were cursing him, but his response was not boasting. Rather, he spoke the truth and committed himself to God. I think we need that right now. The Western world in which we live increasingly calls us fools, backward, fundamentalist, zealots. Every major academic institution in this country and every mainstream media source says that we are holding the world back from the glory of progress. All day long, we are told that we are worthless. Some of our family and friends even treat us as naive fools. They think we waste our money and time on attending church and reading the Bible. Meanwhile, they think themselves very wise for admiring Jesus, but not getting so carried away. Some unbelievers even go so far as to actually describe us as abusive because we require our children to read the word and pray or attend church. We need to recover this psalm and this name for God. God, my righteousness, the one who upholds my cause. On the day of Christ's appearing, we will be vindicated publicly. Not just us individually, but Christ's whole church. Even now there are signs of this vindication. 
As this nation has despised the teachings of the Bible and ridiculed believers, it has sunk down into greater and greater violence. The statistics are startling and undeniable. People in this country have never been more depressed, more anxious, more broken. At an even bigger level, we could point to the 20th century. Many Western people, you might know this, came to Christ after World War II, famous people and regular people too. And that happened because they knew something that we have forgotten. They knew that the 20th century was the century of man without God. Oceans of blood later, many sought refuge in the God of the Bible. Even as I say that, let me give you a warning. I'm not advocating that we return to some perfect better time. It didn't exist. I'm well aware there's no time in history that was perfect. That is not our cause. God will not vindicate a political party or a particular generation in history. The concern on that great day of judgment will not be how I was right and you were wrong. It will be a day so solemn, so majestic, and so terrible that we will not be in the mood for mocking anyone. It will not be so much a person, myself, or a church, Grace PCA, that will be vindicated on that day. Rather, it will be Christ and his cause as Messiah, as God's anointed, as David's greater son that will be publicly vindicated. Insofar as we have held to him, insofar as we have held to him, we will share in that vindication. But we need to go further. When we sing Psalm 4, when we say God is my righteousness, we do, with David, look forward to vindication. But for us as New Testament believers especially, and it was true for David as well, but especially as New Testament believers, it has an even greater meaning to us to call God our righteousness. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he has, as never before, become our righteousness. And so on that day, when everything is made right, when every slander is silenced, when every account is read out, then at that moment, the wonder of all the ages, the joy of all the joys, we will stand in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will not be focused on rubbing it in on our political and cultural opponents. We will be in awe, overwhelmed with relief and praise as we see ourselves standing before the judge in the very righteousness of Christ. And at that moment, as never before, we will sing Elohim, Siddiqui, the Lord is my righteousness. Maybe at that very moment, I like to think this might happen. An angel will say with a loud voice, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who vindicates. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. The believer in Christ will be vindicated. Maybe no believer put this so well as Paul in the book of 2 Timothy. The apostle Paul was hated just like Jesus. He was condemned as a blasphemer by the Jews and eventually executed by the Romans. In that way, he was truly conformed to the image of Christ. In 2 Timothy, as death is coming for him, maybe just hours or days before his execution, Paul writes these words, and they're among his very last words to us and to his dear spiritual son. 
He wrote, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Christ's return will be the day his church is publicly vindicated before men and declared righteous before God. And we will sing Elohim Siddiqui, God is my righteousness. But we're not done with this little prayer. Thirdly, we need to put this prayer into the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important. We have not really studied this prayer until we hear it on Jesus's lips. The Psalms, all of the Psalms, find their fulfillment in the life of our Savior. David, as God's anointed, literally as God's Messiah, that's what the word means, David wrote the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David wrote those words. But that psalm is not fulfilled in David, is it? Hearing David say those words will not get you the best and deepest understanding of that psalm, of those words. To really understand that psalm, Psalm 22, you have to go to the cross and hear Jesus, God's perfect Davidic king, the true Messiah, recite those words. The same is true in this psalm. In Jesus' life, as the true Davidic king, as the Messiah, these words find their ultimate expression. When David wrote this prayer, he was fleeing his capital, having been betrayed by a close friend and having watched the nation turn against him. As David flees his palace, the Bible tells us of a dramatic pause. He pauses on the Mount of Olives and prays to God. He is in terrible distress, abandoned by friends, betrayed by someone in his inner circle. He wonders aloud about God's will in all this. As he prays there on Gethsemane, David comes to understand that he will survive this. God will not allow him to be caught or killed. And from that moment on, David has hope. He can sleep at night. This psalm is born out of that experience. But fast forward now to the time of Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, has gone in distress to this very spot. He is David's heir. He is the true Messiah, the one whom David prophesied about in Psalm 110 and all the Psalms. He has done nothing wrong. He's far more innocent than David ever was. And yet here is Jesus betrayed by someone in his inner circle and the whole nation has turned against him. But what happens next? Not what you would expect if you were reading just the Old Testament. Jesus is not delivered. Jesus never lays his head down again to sleep or rest. He does not escape. Instead, the slander and shame is intensified. Instead of deliverance or the comfort of faithful friends, Jesus is turned over to sinful men. In his own religious community, he is convicted of blasphemy, the worst crime for a Jew. In the Gentile community, he's convicted of being an insurrectionist, worthy of the worst possible civil punishment. Jesus was absolutely and totally rejected. All the people and priests, along with the Gentiles, declared him a miscreant worthy of death, especially the death of the cross. Now, the cross was not just a way to kill, 
someone painfully. Of course it was that, but it was so much more. The cross was a way of shaming someone, humiliating someone entirely. The English, uh, my ancestors, would take traitors and hang them, but not kill them. Just get them to the point where they were choking, incoherent, and out of control, sprawled on the ground. And then they would tie them down by their arms and legs. They would cut them open, and very carefully, very publicly, they would untie their intestines, burning them bit by bit. All this was done while the person was nude and exposed to the crowds for mockery and horror, while they groveled and defecated on themselves. This is how the English monarchs reminded you that they were gods and you were a worm. And that is exactly, exactly what the cross was about. The point was not just the horrific pain, but the absolute shame. That was the point of crucifixion. The point was to nail a person up like a picture, naked on the side of the road for all to see, and then make them vomit and defecate on themselves. Let the birds and bugs have them. Let the wounds open up as they became meat and push themselves up for one last breath. The point was that you would never again talk about that person. Never again would you question the ruling class. Never again would you question the conventional wisdom. Never would you question Rome's progress. And it worked. It was effective. Only one crucified person in all of history has ever been remembered. Now, I know that picture I just gave you is graphic, but you need it if you're going to understand what comes next. Because as we will soon sing next month, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. In Jesus' resurrection, God the Father vindicated him, and Psalm 4, verse 1, came true as never before. God the Father was Jesus' God of my righteousness, God who upholds my cause. So Isaiah prophesies of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, but when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you see now? To really hear this psalm, to really hear it, it must be put on the lips of our lovely Lord Jesus Christ. He, in the truest sense, was the anointed of God who was slandered by men and who was vindicated by God. In David's words, he was brought into a broad place. So many passages speak of this, but maybe none is more powerful than those of Isaiah 50. In that section that we recently studied with Pastor Trefskar and I read this evening to begin our worship, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, says this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The Puritan Thomas Watson 
once referred to this psalm as David's pillow, David's pillow. And I love that. And that's the title of our sermon tonight. David had what no one can take from you and what nothing else can replace. He had peace in God. In another place, David says this, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And that peace begins with a name, God my righteousness. Whatever happens to me, God will vindicate me. He will uphold me because I am his son. This is David's pillow. It is Christ. In Christ, David has the love of God as sunshine and the joy of God as wine. I know that the psalm was originally written with sleep in view. It's definitely what David is thinking of, but I can't help but push this psalm forward to that moment coming in each of our lives. Each of us will find ourselves on a deathbed one day. It's easy to forget that, especially if you're young, but take a moment to think about it. How can you really be at peace at that moment? In a sense, when we lie down at night, it is a kind of rehearsal, isn't it? A great rehearsal for that one last sleep. How will you face the darkest day of your life? Maybe it will be the day of your death, or maybe it will be a day like this one, where the world seems to turn against you and slander you. You need David's pillow. Tonight, I want you to go home, and as you lay your head on the pillow, I want you to pray with me. Now I lay me down to sleep. Now I lay my head on the pillow that is Christ. All my trust is in him. I will awake in the morning, either here or in glory. Let fear and worry, brothers and sisters, let fear and worry die on that pillow and rest in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is no rest for the weary except in your son. It is this great pillow that you have given to us. For he indeed is our righteousness. He upholds our cause. He has himself been vindicated, and now he stands ready to vindicate his church. Help us to find rest and peace in him. Help us to bear with the slander and insults of the world. Help us not to be intimidated or manipulated by those rejections, but rather with boldness, with David, to look to you and to know that you will hear us. You will redeem us and save us, and you will vindicate your whole church. Give us rest. Give us sleep, even tonight, in all of your precious promises. For we do pray it in Christ's precious name. Amen.